right, well, why don't we get started? My name is Andrew Gordon, and I'm the acting director this year of the Harvard Asia Center. And on behalf of all of the Asia-related centers at Harvard who are joining forces for this event, I want to thank you all for coming and thank the panelists all for taking part. Soon after the election last November, it occurred to many of us that it the new administration marked enough of a change probably in things that were going on with the United States and the world, and in particular the United States and Asia, that it would be valuable to convene occasionally to discuss aspects of this uh, current administration and its relationships with Asia. So the first event of that character took place in December. Uh, it was a much, there's lots of uncertainty still, I think. There was even more uncertainty then. And it was a really valuable event. And I'm very grateful now today for um, Tarun Khanna for agreeing to co-host with me a, a second of these Trump and Asia um, talks. There have been other discussions in other fora on this issue, of course, but for the Asia-related centers, this is the second of what we expect will be um, for a while, anyway, a continuing series of conversations. Uh, so Professor Tarun Khanna, who's uh, the director of the South Asia Institute and also a professor at the Harvard Business School, will start off by introducing the panelists and the panel, uh, our discussion. Uh, unfortunately for us, fortunately for his students, he has a class to teach over at the business school, so he'll have to leave uh, a little before one, and then I'll step into the moderating of the Q&A at that point. So thank you all, and over to you, Tarun. Great, uh, thank you so much. Welcome, everybody. My name is Tarun Khanna, um, and I have the pleasure of uh, co-moderating this with, uh, with Andy. Um, I'm gonna introduce the panelists, starting from my extreme right, um, working my way towards me, and uh, then I'll say a little bit about the uh, organization of the panel and uh, ask, uh, uh, frame, the, uh, frame the discussion uh, probably needlessly provocatively, but just in the interest of, uh, of some fun. Um, so on my extreme right is the eminent Bill Kirby, uh, mentor to me, historian, uh, exemplary historian, uh, professor at HBS and faculty of arts and sciences. I really think of his most recent book with some colleagues at HBS is uh, called Can China Lead? Uh, but for those of you who know Bill, his interests are very far-reaching, far and to me anyway, he's a student of uh, uh, capitalism or what passes as capitalism in China through the ages um, and has been studying uh, something very interesting to me which is the uh, the genesis and rise uh, of China's universities particularly on the global stage um, not sure whether and how that's relevant to Mr. Trump but uh, I'm sure it'll work its way in if not I will drag it in um, to his left is uh, Maria Solis who I just had the pleasure of meeting senior fellow in Japan studies in the Brookings Center. Uh, Maria has a very long CV, is originally from Mexico. Um, her most recent book is called, is about, if I remember correctly, free trade agreements and their diffusion. Um, was it across the Pacific, in the Pacific Rim? Um, so Maria has a great deal of uh, experience with free trade, which of course has been in the news with uh, TPP and so on for some time and has the benefit of um, a lot of background uh, knowledge and personal experience from Latin America. Uh, Andy mentioned that uh, I'm teaching a class across the river and it's to a collection of CEOs from, uh, from Mexico, 
which is Maria's home country. So maybe that'll work its way in too, just some, some comparative insights. Uh, to my right is uh, Mark Wu, who's an assistant professor at Harvard Law School. Wide-ranging interests. I know Mark from some years ago when he started doing some work in India. Um, he's also faculty director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Um, was part of the WTO to serve on the advisory board for one of WTO's advisory boards. Is active in the World Economic Forum and so on and so forth. Um, so with that introduction, it's nice that we have a couple of people from uh, the arts and sciences, a couple from the professional schools, a couple of political economists, some historians. Uh, it's a motley crew, and I think that makes for an interesting discussion. Um, my own background, I'm uh, an applied mathematician, um, economist, if, if somebody insists, uh, at the business school, and uh, I spend all my time in developing countries, and since I'm from India, I will anchor the India piece of this to the extent that it's relevant. So my provocative framing um, uh, is as follows. The, the title of uh, uh, today's uh, panel is Trump and Asia, Business as Usual, with a question mark. And um, I, just for the sake of argument, say that, yeah, it's business as usual. Really, nothing's changed. Um, but let me explain why I, why I say that, despite all the bluster um, uh, in the media every day. Um, you know, as academics, our, uh, our role is to be skeptical of just about anything. So when I see a lot of bluster, I'm skeptical of the reason for the bluster. And then I begin to think, you know, do I really believe that there's anything, uh, is it just all smoke or is there really some fire underlying it as well? Um, when I think about the country that I know best in this region, um, India, uh, I think it's largely propelled by its own internal, internal dynamics. Um, it's uh, basically trying to get up to what I'll describe as the world productivity frontier. It's quite a ways away from it. Um, and um, uh, almost anything that you see happening in India today is motivated by a rush to that frontier. And that process is probably going to take several decades. Uh, and in terms of um, uh, you know, orders of magnitude of significance, I would say it eclipses the importance of Mr. Trump or anybody else, really, for that matter. And that applies to the politics of India as well as the economics. When I shift to China, which I know modestly well, not nearly as well as India, but modestly well, um, you know, as you all know, and there are many, many China experts in the room, uh, it's preoccupied with its own internal rebalancing of its economic model, if you will, uh, trying to shift from its export-led model from some, some decades ago to internal consumption-led, um, trying to entrench the power of, uh, uh, of the current leader in China. Um, and I could make the argument that, uh, you know, despite the saber-rattling in the South China Seas and the kerfluffle across uh, uh, the very nice dictator in North Korea currently, um, that really the internal dynamics are much more important. Uh, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, I don't know very much about Japan, um, uh, so I won't comment on it or the other parts of, other parts of Asia. But that's my, my sort of provocative framing, and I leave it to my panelists to take me to task for it, just, uh, just for fun, and then we can go, we can go back and forth. Uh, but the, 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 the modus operandi here is going to be that everybody is going to speak for no more than 10 minutes, and uh, with the permission of my panelists, I will... Uh, somewhat rudely remind them at nine minutes, and then uh, uh, if I could disconnect the mic, I would at 10, but I won't, and so I won't. Uh, I can't, and so I won't. And uh, then after about half an hour, we can open it up. And I do apologize for having to rush off and teach, so I will um, beat an ungraceful exit at around one. Um, without further ado, uh, thank you all again for coming, and uh, Bill, the floor is yours for 10 minutes. Thanks, Tony. Thank you much. It's one of these wonderful gatherings when I surely hope that the audience has at least as much knowledge about Trump and Asia as we do uh, on, this, on this panel. 
Um, you know, the Tarun mentioned, you know, business as usual. In some sense, there is this, at least during the campaign, a broad sense of deja vu listening to Mr. Trump uh, attack China for its trade policies, but in almost exactly the same language uh, that American politicians ritually attacked Japan in the 1980s, uh, and as if stuck in a time warp, uh, attacking Japan, of course, at the same time. Uh, but that reminds me of uh, a building such as this, of the high point of American both tensions with Japan in the 1980s and Japanese investment in the United States. Uh, the acquisition in, uh, of Rockefeller Center in 1989 and 1990 uh, uh, by uh, Mitsubishi. Uh, and Rockefeller Center is still there. Is Mitsubishi still there? Is they're still <laughs> hanging in. They're hanging in. Uh, but if one were to go uh, forward a little bit uh, to, sorry, uh, to uh, contemporary times, of course, now we see China taking that place. Anbang uh, taking on the, this old dowager of a, uh, of a hotel, the Waldorf Astoria, um, uh, and uh, beginning work on a nearly $2 billion uh, investment uh, and working uh, with a great Harvard College graduate, Mr. Jared Kushner, uh, 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 on potentially 666 Fifth Avenue, actually very interesting and historic uh, building in its time, something on a deal valued at nearly $3 billion, um, you know, the most ever for a Manhattan uh, uh, building, something that has not happened. But in some sense, if you were to look at Trump and Asia in one little quadrant of the world, Manhattan, which somehow faute de mieux has become the center of the US political uh, universe, uh, you do see Asia in Manhattan or Asia in Trump. ICBC, the, in, uh, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, is the largest single tenant in Trump Tower. Uh, leasing began in 2012, and it expires just when Mr. Trump's term is set to expire um, in 2019-2020. The, the uh, Chen Xiaoyuan, uh, Yen, uh, the, who's the managing director of Global Alliance Associates, uh, owns a 15 or $16 million penthouse in Trump Tower. Uh, and Mr. Trump himself, just to make, you know, it's, it's good to have a president who puts his money where his mouth is, uh, or at least his uh, liabilities where his mouth is. He has loans from the Bank of China valued at nearly $1 billion, about 950 uh, million dollars. So just in one quadrant of Manhattan, uh, Asia is active uh, in a continual way, but now it's China, no longer uh, Japan. Chinese companies, of course, are coming to the United States in large measure, uh, in a way, and in a different way, but in a way uh, not unlike Japanese in the 1980s, and particularly in the 1990s. To give one example, one of the ones in which I have a Harvard Business School case is the Wanchang Jituan, the Wanchang Company, a company founded in a people's commune in 1969 uh, to make universal joints. Uh, some of you will know what a universal joint is for a car. I always have to tell my undergraduates it's not something that you smoke and pass around. It's, um, <laughs> in fact, uh, necessary uh, for automobile transportation. Uh, they started in this hovel in 1969 in the People's Commune as a socialist enterprise. 1979, get into the state plan in China, just as the auto industry is taking off. 
this is their headquarters in Hangzhou today, the biggest auto <coughs> parts manufacturer in the biggest automobile manufacturing company country in the world. Um, uh, uh, and uh, this is their Chicago headquarters because they have now acquired 30 American auto parts and other companies uh, and employ nearly 20,000 uh, Americans overseen by all of 15 Chinese uh, in Chicago. And they're poised also to make an electric vehicle, having acquired the A123 lithium-ion battery company here in Waltham, Massachusetts, and the Fisker Automobile Company in California. So later this year, you can buy this car, if things go on schedule, Chinese-made, uh, as it were, but made in California uh, vehicle, uh, really cool, really fast, only 130000 uh, dollars plus destination charge of 1400 There is some negotiation. I got it. Uh, this is just one of many Chinese firms that is here and if in this country. Uh, there are about 100,000 Americans who were employed by Chinese companies uh, in the United States in 2016, uh, almost all of them by private Chinese enterprise. Uh, there's 60 plus, 60 plus billion dollars of Chinese foreign direct investment in the United States and largely in sectors such as energy, real estate and hospitality, information and communication technology, agriculture and food, entertainment, education and media. Uh, these are the largest single categories. And the biggest private investors in the United States uh, all five of them are private enterprises, Wanda, uh, Shuanghui, so Wanda for entertainment, uh, the AMC chain, Shuanghui for pigs and pork, uh, Lenovo, you know, Hire, Foshan. Uh, so we're at a moment, actually, despite the enormous and continuing trade deficit between China and the United States, of a possible beginning of a rebalancing of a kind, at least uh, in the public eye, in the way that Japan deflected American criticism, not the least, by building important plants that employ lots of Americans in this country, and the, particularly through the Japanese auto industry, uh, we are at the beginning of a large-scale possible investment of, just as Mr. Trump presumably would want, of Chinese companies in the United States. Whether or not he really would like a Chinese automobile factory in the United States is another matter. So when it comes to the question here, uh, things vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, on business and trade, not so bad from a Trumpian point of view. What could possibly go wrong in our new relationship with China? Well, telecommunications is one way that things might go wrong uh, if one looks at uh, uh, Tsai Ing-wen uh, taking this unexpected phone call, truly set up by the Trump side, no matter who uh, uh, called uh, whom, uh, and with some reverberations uh, elsewhere. Uh, multiple, uh, getting to know Mr. Xi Jinping, uh, now the core, the Hushin uh, of the Chinese leadership. We have two cores together, um, uh, uh, sitting in Florida, one of them looking a bit stupefied. Um, <laughs> and it's either a sign of great progress or a sign of lack of communication that they've had to talk on the phone three times yesterday uh, uh, included. And finally, of course, uh, we have the wild card in the enterprise of what might or what might not go wrong in US-China and US-Asia relations. Uh, uh, the young leader in Pyongyang 
uh, here with uh, Liu Yunchan, the uh, standing committee member of the Chinese Communist Party, who last visited uh, Pyongyang in 2015. And there I will stop to leave more time for questions, uh, since there are actually as yet no answers. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> okay, Mireille, yeah, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I spent a lot of uh, years here as a grad student, and it's wonderful to be back and, you know, all these memories. Um, so um, I think that this panel has a very interesting question uh, in front of us. When we think about the Trump presidency and Asia, should we think about it being as business as usual, or is something else uh, happening? And my remarks today are going to focus on trade policy because that's the area that I know better. And um, I would make the case that even though it's early days, the Trump administration is going to hit the 100-day mark this Saturday. And we know that they're very focused on it, even if recently they're trying to downplay it. Nevertheless, it's early days. A lot can happen. But I would make the case that it's not business as usual. And I look forward to a back and forth with Tarun and the other panelists and all of you to discuss continuity and change uh, in relations between uh, the United States and Asia on the trade front under this administration. But first of all, I do want to note that there has been a collective sigh of relief uh, in Asia and also many quarters in the United States because the more extreme promises that we heard during the presidential campaign when it comes to trade, that the United States, for example, would impose a blanket tariff of 45% on Chinese products, and that could trigger perhaps a trade war between the two countries. That, of course, has not happened. And uh, on the contrary, um, you know, when President Xi Jinping visited DC recently, I think that both leaders, uh, although the picture is very interesting, but nevertheless, they stroke a conciliatory note. And I think it was uh, very uh, interesting to watch then President Trump say recently that, after all, China is not a currency manipulator. And now that he's interested in pursuing cooperation with North Korea, he expects that the trade agenda will not be as divisive. Uh, so I think that this has then created the perception, and perhaps it's right, I, I think it's a very fluid situation, that as Trump has transitioned from a candidate to president, that he has become more moderate in his views when it comes to trade, and therefore that we could indeed perhaps that this trend continues and things will go back to more normal, familiar equilibrium. I would like to make the case, even though I don't like to be the uh, pessimist in the room, that it's premature to reach this more optimistic reading of what lies ahead. And I'm going to focus on four major points to highlight what may be unusual what may be changing, what could create waves in the future, but also come back to talk about uh, some continuities because not everything is different. I would make four points. One, about policy confusion. Two, about the fallout from the American withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that trade agreement of 12 uh, countries uh, in the region. Three, the implications of a U.S. administration rejecting multilateralism in favor of bilateralism? What does that mean when you hear from the US government that multilateralism is not the way to go? And fourth, I also would like to bring up NAFTA, not only because I am from Mexico, 
Uh, I understand it's a panel of Asia, uh, regarding Asia, but because there are significant Asian economic interests in NAFTA, and if we want to understand what the trade policy of this administration is going to be, I think NAFTA is Exhibit A. And I think that there's some important red flags uh, regarding that NAFTA renegotiation. And I'll talk about the familiar elements. So policy confusion. I think that in the uh, past few weeks, uh, three months perhaps, there have been a lot of policy reversals. NATO is obsolete until it's not obsolete. China is a currency manipulator until it's not a, Chinese, a, a currency manipulator. So you get my drift, that there has been a lot of back and forth on the positions that this administration takes on very important foreign policy issues. And I think that when it comes to the trade uh, uh, realm in particular, it has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of consistency among the group of advisors that surround President Trump. People who are closer in the trade circle, I would make the case, share more of a, a view regarding uh, trade with Mr. Trump than other economic advisors who perhaps have a different understanding on the value of uh, the world economy and how much the United States benefits from being a central pillar of that. So, you know, one way in which people talk about this is that, in fact, the first trade war has already started, but it's taking place inside the White House. And you could also, if you look at the coverage on, you know, newspaper coverage of what's happening in the Trump administration, I think that a lot of it, you know, varies week by week. And the discussion is, are the nationalist ascendant, are the globalist ascendant? And my general point just being that when week by week we have to revisit this basic question as to what is the overall direction what is the scope, what is the message, what are the end goals of American trade policy, this is not business as usual. This creates a lot of confusion in Asia and many other parts of the world. Second, I think that when people talk about a more moderate uh, Trump presidency when it comes to trade, they basically focus on the fact that he has not done some things that he talked about, again, the 45% tariff on Chinese products, or that a lot of the initiatives really are a call for further study of the trade deficit, of how to tighten our buy American rules, hire American rules. So not a lot of action. But I would argue that one major, very consequential decision has already taken place, actually in the first few days of his administration. And that already has ripple effects across the region. And that is the decision to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If you study trade policy, I can say you've seen it all. So, you know, it's true that there have been many instances of failed trade negotiations. The uh, Free Trade of the Americas initiative never materialized. Bilateral talks between the United States and Thailand, between the United States and Malaysia, did not prosper. So we know that sometimes trade negotiations do not reach the finish line. We also know that many trade agreements that the United States has negotiated, even when they're concluded, they stay in limbo, ratification limbo for many years, eventually have to be reopened in order to make changes so that they can pass in Congress. Case in point, the trade agreements with Panama, Colombia, and the Korea-US trade agreement. So we basically have seen it all, you would think. But there's one thing we had never really seen, the United States formally withdrawing from a trade agreement that it championed and that it had reached a successful conclusion. You actually have the text, but it's not the text really 
only the text that matters, is all the political compromises from all participating countries that went into making that negotiation uh, to happen. And I think that this is going to have then a very serious effect for American policy in the region. The idea that you can just forget about it, refer to it as a thing of the past, and then uh, argue that we can then sit down and roll our sleeves and negotiate a string of bilaterals fails to recognize how much credibility has been lost in the region and how much doubts there are out there that the American political system can deliver on negotiated trade deals. And if you feel that the task is extremely hard, that takes a huge disincentive for these countries to be willing to indeed negotiate with the United States. But that's not the only consequence of this decision on TPP. Many countries in the region have begun to recalibrate their trade strategies in very important ways, ways that will affect the United States. Take the case of Japan, for example. I think it, everybody remembers that right after the election, when President Trump again pledged that he would withdraw from the TPP, Prime Minister Abe said that without the United States, TPP was meaningless. Well, it's only three or four months since that remark, and Japan actually has now recalibrated straight strategy, so much so that it's now beginning to advocate for a TPP without the United States. Now, you can imagine what a huge disappointment it was for Prime Minister Abe when the United States decided to withdraw. The TPP was a central part of the country's economic revitalization strategy, but was also considered to be critical to uh, Japan's geopolitical interests. It was about anchoring the US presence in the region. It was about getting past divisive market access issues that had plagued both countries and working together in supplying governance to the region at a time when China's influence is only going to rise. None of those benefits can now be realized because of the American exit. But that does not mean that Japan does not see sufficient merit to continue to advocate for a TPP without the United States. The economic one benefits, minute. one minute, Ooh. Economic benefits are there, but certainly the geopolitical benefits, in case that Japan and the United States decide to negotiate a bilateral trade agreement, Japan is much better positioned to uh, negotiate if the TPP is alive. So this is not business as usual because we're giving an incentive to countries in the region that wanted to work with us to move ahead without us. Third uh, no, uh, point of business, uh, not as usual, is the NAFTA renegotiation. And here I'll just say that the fate of NAFTA is no longer assured. We're going to go through a renegotiation and we are going to ask Congress to vote on a renegotiated package deal. And there is no assurance that this can actually work uh, well. Now, what is, not, uh, uh, what is a continuity? And then I'll wrap up, uh, Tarun, I promise. The rhetoric. I have this exact same feel of a bill of deja vu. The rhetoric that you hear on trade is all the managed trade approach of the 1980s. It is trade is zero sum. We're being cheated on. Uh, flawed trade agreements are responsible for the trade deficit. And therefore, if we negotiate differently, we can correct that trade deficit. The tools are also very familiar. And I think what we're going to see is this administration going back, digging from that toolkit that it used in the past that are largely unilateral measures. Section 301, 
and more recently, Section 232, that allows the United States to raise tariffs for national security considerations. I cannot go into the details of that because I've run out of time. But my last point is that it's deja vu for me because when I arrived at Harvard as a grad student, managed trade and unilateralism were the main strains of American trade policy. But this was a trade policy, and I've already dated myself as being very old. This is a trade policy, if you think about it, of the 20th century. It was predominant late 1980s, early 1990s. We have a very different world economy today. Trade is not bilateral. You need imports to export. You have now a World Trade Organization that has disciplines that try to prevent the use of unilateral policies. And then, when I think of all of these together, I would say, Verdict is, it's not business as usual. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Good afternoon, and uh, I want to thank the organizers uh, and all of you for coming out uh, on this uh, dreary April day um, to uh, hear our thoughts about uh, Trump and Asia, business as usual. Uh, the answer I want to give today is, uh, so far, 100 days into this administration, uh, we can take a look at the big picture, and we could say, right, um, things are not that different. So you might look at this to say 100 days in, uh, this is somewhat business as usual, or at least this has been a return back to the norms away from the election rhetoric and so forth. Uh, but I want to argue or answer the question by saying um, it's not going to be quite business as usual because the way that this administration looks at Asia and the way this administration looks at trade is dramatically different than its predecessors. And although we have talked about this being a return to the Reagan era managed trade unilateralism philosophy, uh, the world around us has changed in the last 30 years such that the efficacy of those policies are going to be different this time around. Uh, but how much this is not going to be business as usual is still very much an open question because we're still in the wait and see period 100 days into the administration. And so let me touch on each of those three points, right? First, that so far, 100 days in, this is business as usual, but we're in a temporary holding pattern. Second, that the view here looks different. And even if the tools look familiar, the landscape has changed. And then third, why I think the extent to which this will not be business as usual, um, that still remains an open question. Um, so on the first question, right, uh, 100 days in, if we take a look at um, where we thought we might be 100 days into this, and particularly uh, after that first Monday uh, when President Trump signed uh, the withdrawal from the TPP, we thought maybe there was a lot more to come in the next 97 days. And actually, um, those 97 days have not turned out to be uh, quite as dramatic as one might think, right? Um, there's not been a big disruption uh, beyond the withdrawal from the TPP. So far, we're still in an era of trade skirmishes, right? A series of cases being launched, um, Section uh, uh, Section 301-like or unilateral-type decisions, uh, investigation into aluminum for national security reasons and so forth, uh, but no big trade war. 
Um, the WTO still remains the main fora for trade litigation. Uh, there hasn't been, despite um, threats to withdrawal out of the WTO, any movement along that front. Um, global value chains, global capital still continues to flow freely across the Asia Pacific region. And I think, you know, for those of you who are liberal arts historians in the room, if you take a several centuries look at this, right? One might look to say um, that the history of the 21st century is still going to be, as uh, Tarun alluded to, right? Still going to be written largely on the basis of decisions made uh, on domestic factors in Beijing and New Delhi, and uh, its interplay with decisions in Washington, Brussels, and Tokyo. So in that front, right, the world today looks very uh, much the same as one might have expected. Um, even in the Clinton administration, and certainly um, no, not that different than uh, one would have thought of on November uh, 7th uh, of last year. Uh, but there have been casualties, right? and Maria alluded to one of those uh, being the TPP. Uh, I think uh, uh, another one, uh, which we've not talked about, but I just want to put a marker on the table, uh, has been the US-China Bilateral Investment Treaty. I think uh, that, uh, treaty for the time being is shelved. Um, and we could look at other forms of treaties under discussion in the Obama administration, the US-India uh, Bilateral Investment Treaty as well is one for which um, has been uh, shelved. But even if we look at some of the much more small scale, uh, the possibilities that we would have environmental goods agreement uh, with the US, China, Europe, Japan, and others on board, the possibilities of a fisheries agreement and so forth, um, all of these are possible casualties, and if not casualties, at least the momentum has slowed gradually. So I don't think we can quite say, even though the big picture is the same, that there has been no effect whatsoever uh, on some of the near-term uh, treaties under negotiation. But what I want to draw our attention, or what I want to focus on, is even if right days four through 100 of this administration have been not been quite as dramatic as that first Monday, um, the view which this administration takes towards trade and business in the Asia-Pacific is dramatically different than um, its three previous predecessors, uh, both Republican and Democratic. Um, why do I say that? We know that uh, trade and business involve a series of zero-sum and positive-sum issues, uh, but in this administration's view, I think many of the zero-sum issues particularly in the competition between uh, the US and China, uh, but to some extent also then implicating each of the allies in the region, um, Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, and then if you add India into the picture, the zero-sum elements, both from an economic perspective as well as from a uh, political perspective, particularly in China, South China Sea, um, are at the fore. And the way this administration has kept score on many of the zero-sum issues, uh, whether you're talking about manufacturing jobs, high-tech industries, percentage of global GDP, and so forth, it sees American power as in retreat, and it sees this as a trend that needs to be reversed. Um, and so I think that's one dimension which is, is different. A second dimension which is, is different is clearly this administration cares much more about deficits than other previous administrations. I think others have looked at the deficit as but one metric. Um, and clearly deficits, if you look at where the trade issues are being raised, this is being driven on end of deficits. Right? Um, whereas other administrations have looked at tariffs and reciprocal tariff cuts, um, this administration has put the VAT 
back into the picture. And when you look at the tariff plus the VAT, it looks as though the American market is much more open than many other markets in Asia. And this administration cares much more about reciprocity, particularly when it comes to investment and looking at um, ensuring that there is investment reciprocity, um, technology transfers and the like. Right. Um, and so on all these issues, you could say, well, perhaps we're back to the 1980s. Um, and in some ways, possibly we are. But there are three important differences. Um, one difference, I think, is the sheer scale of the challenge. When you look at the sheer scale of China and India and you compare that with Japan, right here we're talking about monumentally a much different size challenge. Uh, second, if you look at it in terms of technological tools, um, technology has meant that you can disaggregate trade in a much more robust fashion than we ever could have in the 1980s, uh, making it much harder to sort of keep score uh, the way we did in the 1980s. Uh, and then the emergence of cyber and the asymmetries of cyber, uh, whether for uh, espionage purposes or for commercial purposes has introduced a new dimension. And so in that sense, I think even though we've retreated to the sense of deja vu, and even though the Chinese and others may think the US can simply be placated through a series of investments, a series of market access openings and so forth, I think the world has changed dramatically such that the tools right, are gonna lead us to a greater sense of confrontation. Um, just how large will that confrontation be? And this leads me to my third point. I think we're still in the early days and it's still too hard to tell. But personally, I'm less optimistic than I think others here may be that we'll just easily sort of find an easy path out of all of this. Um, why do I think it's too early to tell? First of all, the Trump trade team is not yet fully in place. Right? Um, the US trade representative um, has not yet been confirmed. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, as a result, several of the political appointees uh, on the trade team uh, have not yet been put into place. The newly formed National Trade Council and its role in conjunction with the uh, National Security Council, National Economic Council, uh, that hasn't all yet to be determined. And so once you have the people on board, uh, we'll be able to see. Uh, second, I think um, the main course of dialogue, right? Um, Mar-a-Lago was basically a punt um, for political purposes on both sides. But um, what is to be delivered out of that mechanism? And we know this is a very much, as I put to a Japanese friend, right? Um, US trade policy all of a sudden has become much more Asian. Um, we are much more transactional in what we seek to deliver. And we tend to look both from a global perspective, but also from the point of view of national strategic champions. Um, and so what's to be delivered from that type of mechanism? It's still too early to tell. Uh, but why I'm a little bit less optimistic is when I look across the Pacific at the constraints facing governments on the other side, right? We have the US having a set of demands, needing a set of transactional um, gifts in some sense, or a give and take um, on all of this. Um, you have China facing a difficult economic transition where whatever you wanna call what's happening in the uh, markets, right? Uh, there is no defying the law of economics. Uh, fiscal markets, uh, financial markets are clearly frothy. You can delay the day of reckoning, but at some day you have to deal with that type of transition. Um, and I think the authorities in Beijing are well aware of that. Um, when you look at New Delhi, right, um, you have a government that has a much more ambitious economic program 
then it's able to put into place, and it needs results to be delivered in the uh, next general elections to be held before 2019. But until that day comes, right, it's going to be very difficult for it to make the types of concessions necessary. Um, you have uh, Japan, where it's clear now several years later that the third arrow is not working. And even if there was the TPP that had come into place, that certainly would not have been enough to catapult the third arrow. And you have a Korean peninsula where on both sides of it, there is a lot of political tension, including uncertainty surrounding what the new government will be in, uh, in, uh, in Seoul. So on all of this, right, um, the possibilities for bargaining are much less than one would hope. Um, but the one uh, bit of possible hope, right, that perhaps business as usual will carry itself through not just these first 100 days, but for the next three to four years, uh, is the fact that there are some real large disruptors. And Pyongyang has given us a sense of one of those, um, such that uh, everyone realizes that marching to the cliff um, with a set of lose-lose really does mean lose for all sides. But I think there is a real sense in this administration that the relationship in Asia needs to be recalibrated. And it remains to be seen uh, what extent capitals in Asia will be uh, willing to do so despite the political constraints that they face. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, thank you, Mark. Um, just, just reflecting on the, uh, on, the, on the panelist's comment to my opening, it is business as usual. Uh, the trend that Bill mentioned of um, uh, foreign investment coming into coming into the U.S. of course predates Trump you know, for quite some time, and I'd I'd make the case that there isn't really a discontinuity around Trump's arrival. Um, uh, similarly, the trend towards sort of uh, regionalism, perhaps uh, potentially accelerated or exacerbated by uh, American withdrawal from TPP is also something that's been going on for 15, 20 years. If you look at the percentage of world trade that's intra-region as opposed to inter-region or something like that. Um, so I, you know, I was trying to think, you know, if I, if I wanted to withdraw from my contention that it is business as usual, what is the most uh, interesting point of departure from these comments? And I think the one that I would fixate on is the idea that I think, Mireya, you, you raised, the idea that there is much more uncertainty. So even if all the fundamentals remain in place, a dramatic, in, a dramatic increase in uncertainty would be sufficient to change a lot of different things in a very fundamental sense. Um, so that's something that I found myself kind of thinking about. I, I wanted to see if any of the panelists wanted to comment on any of the other folks' comments. Uh, and uh, Otherwise, I was just mulling over what's the single biggest thing that you can think of um, that, that makes you think that it won't be business as usual. It's one, one thing. For instance, policy uncertainty is what I had put in place. So e either way. Maria, you uh, wanna go first? I, I have uh, one more uh, thing to suggest, a point that I didn't have a chance to uh, develop. This notion about rejecting multilateralism and uh, opting for a bilateral route. If you look at US policy towards Asia, exclusion from the Asian architecture has always been of utmost concern for the United States. There is a line that everybody quotes about from Jim Baker that no lines across the Pacific because the idea is that the United States must remain embedded in the region. It's in our national interest to be part of the region. 
And if you think about why the United States first arrived into the TPP, this was not a project that originated from the United States. The United States latched on an initiative called the P4, and it was largely motivated by the fact that you had different blueprints for East Asian integration that did not invite the United States. So the United States finds its way into the P4, it transforms it into the TPP, delivers an agreement, and then withdraws from it once it's all completed. And this administration, to me, seems indifferent to the risks of bringing ourselves out of our architecture, and it cannot be compensated through a string of bilateral trade agreements. Quite largely, quite, quite, uh, first of all, because it does not have the geopolitical reach. Second, because these bilateral trade agreements take a long time to negotiate, it's one-on-one. -on -one. They generate idiosyncratic rules, and we're now creating a very large hurdle in bringing, uh, I think someone else remarked today, you know, individual trade agreements back to Congress for a vote. It's going to take a very long time and not might, might not be doable, and at the same time we're letting uh, these countries know that they should proceed without us. Uh, Bill? Yeah, um, this really picks up on what Maya uh, said. I would choose the biggest disruptor in this operation is the combination of policy, policy confusion uh, and um, incompetence. Uh, in the early stages of this administration. Uh, by my count, uh, we will have made it by the end of this week through the first 100 days. That leaves 1,360 more. Um, so there's a lot that could happen, and we appear to be declaring trade wars against Mexico and uh, Canada as well, uh, as almost everyone else. The Germans owe us money. Um, it's just tough to be at war with everybody. Uh, and. So it's this is this confusion, but I think actually the more enduringly problematic one is is this move away uh, from international structures to the idea that you can cut a deal with this guy, this guy, and this guy all separately. Uh, Chinese foreign policy historically and contemporarily has really favored bilateralism, as mm -hmm. certainly in terms of security operations, but it should be in our interest to have multilateral operations such as WTO. Uh, be very robust and very strong in our relations with China. If we flaunt WTO rules, as we appear to be about to be doing, uh, then what incentive uh, do, do our Chinese uh, partners have? And it's the sense of growing restriction for American companies in China that might be a, a totally legitimate area of concern uh, for the United States, uh, uh, United States government going ahead. But we're in a poor position uh, if we ourselves are seen to withdraw from the internationally accepted rules of the game. Well, I find it almost surprising that I would be perhaps the most ardent defender of the administration on this panel. <laughs> um, but let me just make a push back against this view that um, there is no strategy coming out from the White House. Um, I think there is disagreement um, about the Asia policy, but there has been disagreement about the Asia policy 100 days in. If we think about where the Obama administration was on trade, right? Trade was on a pause with an entire reevaluation altogether, right? So um, I think the biggest disruptor here is it's not so much this administration 
doesn't favor free trade or it doesn't favor multilateralism, but it's not willing to put up with a situation where our allies free ride on us to get the asks and to get the demands, and it's not willing to put up with one of the largest rising powers, China, um, not necessarily cooperating on some of the WTO rules, if not legally, then certainly in spirit. And it said, well, if from a game theoretical point of view, right, um, if one side continually defects and the other side still continuously cooperates, that just leads to one side being suckered. And so it's threatening a form of defection in hopes of bringing the other side back onto cooperation. I think that is a strategy. Whether you agree or disagree with that strategy right, remains to be said. Uh, but I do think this is a, um, what's really changed as far as the game is concerned is the stakes of inviting further cooperation from the United States on multilateralism has gone up. But as far as I see this White House, the ball is in the capitals in Asia to decide whether or not they want to step up. And if they don't want to step up, this administration is much more willing to say, well, we'll defect as well. And so I think that's a real strategic shift in the way we see things. Uh, but whether things will change or not depends on what's going to happen from the capitals in Asia. And I think there's a, been this predominant fixation on what's happening in Washington, responding to what's happening in Washington. But I think the message coming from Washington is pretty clear, and it's more what we'll see coming out from Beijing, Tokyo, Seoul, Delhi, Canberra, and the likes um, that shapes the outcome here. Uh, thank, th th thank you, everybody. Um, I think this is the least disruptive moment for me to, to depart. So I'll just <laughs> thank you, <Tar> excuse myself. <laughs> Uh, to go to class, and thank you all. It's nice to see you, and Andy will seamlessly elevate the panel. <laughs> all right, so maybe this is the right moment to um, turn things over to you in the audience and continue the conversation with questions, comments. Um, if it's a comment, try to end it with a question mark, and um, identify who you are and what you're connected with locally or far away. Um, do we have a mic to run around? Okay, over here, gentlemen, over here. Yeah. Okay, can you wait a sec for the mic? This is a question I have for the panel and everybody else. <laughs> I don't have my watch on, because would anybody tell me how close to midnight we are? In other words, two months ago, the scientists set the doomsday clock. Do any, does anybody know how close to midnight we are? Two and a half minutes. The last time was two and a half minutes was between 1953 and 1960 when there was a race to develop the first hydrogen bomb. That's what's scary. Anybody want to comment on the connections of this trade issue and security questions? Or we'll, thank you, we'll maybe circle back, but yes. Hi, I'm Esther. I'm a graduate student at the Kennedy School. And I have a question for Dr. Cerise, or uh, maybe Professor Wu. Um, so Dr. Cerise, you ref alluded to a trade war inside uh, the White House or Washington, D.C. I was wondering if you're re referring to partisan divide or insider versus outsider, U.S. liberal hegemony versus isolationism. So I would love to hear your comment. Thanks. Should I answer right away? Yes, yes. Um, thank you for uh, your question. I mean, 
Um, when I was making the remark about the trade war, I was just talking about the White House uh, um, uh, sphere, but I do think that we're talking about a much more polarized discussion on trade in the United States in general. My comment referred to the fact that you have advisors or uh, officials now appointed in commerce or nominated for USTR, a new position in the uh, Trade Council with Mr. Navarro, who seem to be more in agreement with the idea that you have to you know, stop cheating, that you have to go for enforcement as the main driver of your trade policy, and Navarro actually even making the case that you can renationalize the supply chain and bring everything home and everything should be produced in the homeland. Um, and that's identified as a more nationalist trend. And then you have uh, Gary Kahn uh, in the White House Economic Council who is perceived as being more internationally oriented. And many people remark how among his staff he also has some people that work very actively in the TPP and therefore they'll bring very different perspectives. So the notion is that you know, President Trump may, uh, uh, out of conviction, be closer to the trade circle, but he also listens to other advisors. And there's also pressure from the business community. I think that they have had an earful, especially from agricultural sectors, because they are very concerned that now that the TPP is not there, they're going to be losing market share um, to Australia in the Japanese market. But also now that the fate of NAFTA is in question, there is also the concern that Mexico will diversify. Mexico is already approaching countries in South America to buy its grain from other uh, countries because they know precisely what uh, 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 buttons to push. Mexico knows very well the trade politics of this country. They've had had a very long history of interacting with the United States. So that's the thrust of the comment. Yes. But all that might be good because some of these agreements might have been um, <coughs> restrictive in certain aspects. And my feeling is that they needed to throw them out in order to sort of restructure them in a <coughs> kind of a anti-internationalism, could be nationalism. Maybe it isn't. Maybe, you know, TPP was flawed because the Chinese really weren't part of the TPP. How can you have Chinese China without being, you know, a major player in the TPP? I mean, that was a major omission. They said that it would like uh, come in later on <coughs> and be included as time went on. And the, besides, that was like Trump's main political aspect in terms of his reelection was to reshape the situation. So uh, in only 100 days, you can't necessarily claim that the reshaping has even begun or even where it will wind up. And why everybody's putting so much pressure on that just seems sort of absurd. It seems very arbitrary to me. So what I'd, I'd like you to address is what the weakness in the TPP actually was. Sure. Uh, thanks for your question. And I know that you know there's a lot of discussion as to whether these trade agreements are well constructed, whether they're representative of you know, every interest of the United States, whether they balance uh, um, competing interests, say, on, in, on property, intellectual property rules, access to medicines, protection of innovation. It's very complex, all the set of issues that get uh, um, addressed in these trade agreements. 
Um, would the TPP be better if it included uh, China? I think so. But I also believe that the goal of the TPP from the get-go uh, has been about expansion. The TPP started very small and it has been growing. And I think that if you look at the disciplines that were negotiating TPP, in many instances they were with an eye as to how they would affect Chinese uh, trading practices. So the biggest payoff would have been if eventually China would have joined the TPP. It was seen as an inducement mechanism to try to encourage China's reform. It is up to China, or it was up to China to decide if eventually they wanted to participate, and that would have required a cost-benefit analysis on their part to see if their interests were served or not uh, with the TPP. But the TPP is different from other trade agreements because it has a docking mechanism. It's an open platform. Many other trade agreements, by design, are about just existing members, and they are not supposed to grow. The TPP, in that sense, uh, was a strong uh, point. Uh, what are the uh, weaknesses? Well, I think that, um, you know, better balancing on intellectual property rules perhaps would have been uh, desirable, but I don't see that happening because the TPP basically reflects the way in which trade policy is formulated in this country. So, for example, I have a book coming out soon where I make the case that we should improve mechanisms to have a more diverse set of stakeholders providing input onto these uh, trade rules. But overall, uh, no trade agreement is perfect, but it would have advanced U.S. economic interest. It would not have created major disruptions in terms of job losses, and it would have generated rules that were in the interest of America's competitive industries. So it's not just, you know, steel uh, uh, that should be factored in, but the digital economy, services, areas where uh, advanced manufacturing, where the United States is very competitive. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that would be an overall assessment of TPP. Um, let me add a couple of quick comments there. Uh, so I think there is much to like about the TPP, and the U.S. withdrawing from TPP certainly has geopolitical repercussions. Um, and I think Maria touched on a series of those, um, including reputation, uh, but also specifically when it comes to digital economy services, uh, even on uh, some of the market access issues, right? There's a lot of American interest groups that would have had something to gain from this. Right? Um, the administration's view is, um, however, that wasn't good enough of a deal, and I, the administration thinks it can actually cut a better deal uh, through a series of bilateral. Uh, now, that has repercussions for the multilateral system, Right. Um, but this administration also views that uh, with a non-cooperative China at the multilateral level when it comes to subsidies, disciplines, uh, intellectual property and the like, right, there's no need for the U.S. to be so doubly invested in multilateralism. Right. Um, and so on TPP, I think some of the areas, right, if you were to ask me, right, where are the major shortcomings, I do think, right, um, it's, and I said this on the Hill last year, um, I think the TPP did involve a series of concessions to uh, foreign car manufacturers that would have served as a backdoor for Chinese industries to gain from it and would have come at the expense of upstream U.S. parts manufacturers, steel and the like. Whether that's worth the trade-off or not, that's for us to decide, right? Um, I also think um, it was marketed as this was a deal eventually to raise the stakes for China to sign on to push reform inside China. But if you actually look at the stakes of how the Chinese economy is configured, and I gave a talk at the Fairbank Center two years ago to discuss this, right, China certainly does not need to join on TPP to push forward its own reforms. 
And so I don't think what our biggest goal that we would have sought from TPB would have necessarily been delivered under the current structure because there's too much in the TPP as it was structured that would have been red lines for the Chinese to ever sign on to, at least under the current political regime there. Let's get uh, here, gentlemen here. Thank you. I'm James Shipton from uh, the Program on International Financial Systems at the Law School. Uh, a, pr a question for Professor Kirby and perhaps um, Professor Wu. Mark, you mentioned that um, in your remarks that a lot will be determined by the reactions of the capitals in Asia-Pacific. And I wanted to ask both you and Professor Kirby, well, what is 97 days in? What are sort of the early intel as to the responses, the strategy and reaction of the capitals, particularly Beijing? Let me take it first a little bit from a historical perspective. Uh, Chinese leaders, I think, have become used to American campaigners campaigning against China as part of the uh, stump speeches of presidential campaigns. Reagan uh, in 1980 promised to re-recognize Taiwan. Um, uh, Mr. Clinton campaigned against the butchers of Beijing. Uh, Others, a little bit less, a little bit more, but it's always there in some, some format. I think George H.W. Bush is perhaps the only one who did not did not do this. And almost every one of them will have, well, those two in particular, but also George W. Bush, uh, will have had to early on in their term eat crow in one form or another. The second uh, U.S.-China communique, something that would never have been needed without uh, Reagan's campaign uh, rhetoric and, and Almost, almost all like that. It was a way of resetting the relationship at that time. So they've learned patience uh, with dealing with the outcomes of our unpredictable political uh, system. Uh, that said, I think there is a fair amount of patience and 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 and, and uh, as well as confusion, honest confusion as to what in fact is going on here. Uh, there was initially a sense of relief uh, uh, that Mrs. Clinton hadn't been elected with a kind of universal belief that she would be tougher on China on every measure, including trade, uh, than the unknown Trumpists. Uh, but uh, that quickly faded uh, with the post-election, uh, continuing post-election rhetoric of, uh, of Trump and kind of unilateral and quick decisions on, on trade. So I think, I think the, the reaction right now is patience, uh, sophisticated diplomacy. If you don't understand Mr. Trump, then get to know his son-in-law um, uh, and invite him and his daughter-in-law to the Chinese New Year's party to which the president has forgotten to send a greeting. Uh, things of this sort. Uh, it's, again, very, very, very early days, but I, I admire the, the Chinese ambassador, Mr. Tsui, in Washington for handling the situation as professionally and courteously as is possible under under the circumstances that have that have happened. It's really wait and see, though. And it's uh, and but with a consistent and I think one will see this. You'll see tr some trade concessions to be sure. You'll probably see a page out of Japan and particularly Taiwan's playbook of the 1980s. Buy American missions will come mm -hmm. to the United States and with big press, at least in the Chinese press. Uh, of things that are being bought and, or uh, foreign direct investment, Chinese direct investment in the United States. Things that would have happened anyway, but now will be seen as part uh, and played up so to give Trump some face 
and this, but on matters of, uh, of national policy and strategic interest, you know, just rem remember that Mr. Xi refused to have a phone call even with Mr. Trump until uh, a reaffirmation of a one China policy uh, could be made clearly uh, uh, by Trump, something that would not have had to be made had he not jigged um, up that phone call that we saw a picture of. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, um, Mark, were you going to No, I, 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 I agree. I think um, the Chinese strategy is one of strategic patience and uh, one of let's take and bundle certain things together to try to appease the Americans, to try to create a face-saving way out of all this, and hope that's enough to deal with it. Um, and it's a real question on the part of this administration whether they will try to say that that's enough and that's going to change the game or not, right? Um, you take an issue like data flows, which is enormously important to U.S. industries. I think that's falls on the side of a red line, right, for the Chinese administration. Um, you look at certain issues uh, with regards to reciprocity in terms of investments for certain sectors, even in, say, financial payments. I think that's a red line. Whether we're going to march to a uh, real skirmish over those types of issues um, or whether uh, this administration is going to respond to certain rulings uh, from the WTO that try to curtail what its policy moves can be with respect to dumping from China and the like. Those are the flashpoints to come. If I could just say one quick uh, addendum, Andy, on this. One of the things that we don't know either in Washington or in Beijing, but you may know in Washington, is actually what is in the heads of leaders or those who are the closest advisors. What do they actually know? whether it's facts or fiction, whether it are you know, prejudices or, but I, I'm just reminded of this because it's kind of so, so weird. Uh, I was in Beijing meeting a Fairbanks Center delegation on the day that uh, George uh, W. Bush was confirmed as president by the Supreme Court. And we were meeting this delegation of mine with the man who is the senior policy official for foreign affairs in China, the state counselor, the equivalent of Yang Jiechi today. And he had for our Fairbanks delegation kind of three points, three takeaways that he had from the election. This is Mr. Foreign Policy in China. First, he was pleased that George W. Bush had been elected because if they had any problems with little Bush, Xiao Bush, they would call up old Bush, Lao Bush. <laughs> Turns out not to be true. Uh, second, uh, they were a little concerned uh, by the number of women who had been elected to the House of Representatives because, as we all knew, women were less predictable than men, and what would this mean? These are serious comments. And the third was he was concerned about uh, China's soft power. Uh, how, do you, how do you get better headlines in the New York Times? How do, you, you know, how, do you, how do you improve China's image? And he said, you know, we know that the uh, American media are controlled by the Jews, so how do we get to the Jews? And I said, well, happily, my delegation is half Jewish. They're, we're here to help you. Uh, uh, but this was not a joke. This was this man's worldview at that moment in time. And I wonder sometimes if the worldviews are any more sophisticated among decision makers in the White House. Not just in this White House. So we're in, engaged in a race to the bottom here. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Could I offer a comment just on Japan's uh, moves vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Trump administration? Because obviously Japan was very worried from the rhetoric during the campaign regarding burden sharing in the alliance and then the uh, trade rhetoric. And I think that the Japanese government displayed very nimble diplomacy. You know, there was that early meeting uh, in uh, Trump Tower, but later on the uh, summit in Mar-a-Lago. And I think that they're trying again uh, revive uh, past dynamics. We know that when there has been good chemistry between the American and the Japanese uh, leader, things have uh, looked up. And I think that was the desire that with President Trump that actually works very well and therefore bringing uh, Prime Minister Abe to Mar-a-Lago, golfing, having all that unstructured time together was seen as very positive. And if you look at the readout from that summit, from the point of view of Japan, uh, it couldn't have gone better. The language had been uh, back about talking about uh, Japan and the U.S. bond as unshakable. Then, you know, that night at Mar-a-Lago, there was the North Korea uh, test. And the only comment that President Trump uh, had was we're 100% behind Japan. From the point of view of Japan, nothing else needed to be said. But all the assurances were given that, you know, the Senkaku-Dayu Islands are covered by the security treaty because it's territory under Japan's administrative control and the uh, robustness of the alliance. What was interesting, I think, and well played was that during the meeting between the two leaders, there was a very explicit decision not to get into a discussion on trade and economic issues but to delegate that to uh, others. Uh, um, and then they decided to launch the high-level economic dialogue, and we had the first meeting of that with Vice President Pence visiting Tokyo and meeting with uh, uh, Deputy Minister Aso. And that's where you begin to see the gaps. If you look at, you know, at the readout, at the uh, statement, and then the press conference from that meeting, it's very clear that you know this is where the comment of TPP is a thing of the past. That's how uh, President, Vice President Pence talked about uh, the trade agenda and uh, advocating for a formal bilateral trade agreement between the two countries. Deputy Prime Minister Asu still talking about the value of the TPP as a multilateral framework for trade and rules and only talking about a bilateral framework, nothing that would uh, be yet defined as a trade agreement. Yes, there's a question back there and then we'll come over this way. Hi, <coughs> my name is Dino. I'm not from Harvard, I'm from MIT, but I come in peace. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have is, uh, China has been aggressively uh, pursuing its own trade agreements. So we hear about the RCEP and the Asia-Pacific Free Trade Agreements. Uh, do you think it, they'll be successful in doing so? And whether this is a means to shut out the US from future bilateral or multilateral agreements? Who wants to take I, I can start and then maybe you can. Um, I, I think RCEP is a significant initiative. I find that many times in Washington, maybe people are... You could, maybe not everybody knows oh. the acronym. Can you yes, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a 16-nation trade grouping uh, that you know has Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, New, Ze New Zealand, and India. Um, so I think it's a very important initiative, the sheer size of the agreement and the fact that if you do have some tariff reduction that they may have important benefits. Sometimes, to be quite frank, in Washington, people tend to be dismissive of the RCEP because they argue it's a low-quality, low-ambition trade agreement. But nevertheless, it's a liberalizing initiative and it would have impact if it comes to fruition. Uh, but it has been a very challenging negotiation, and I would argue that it has to do with the uh, leadership gap in that trade grouping. There is no clear uh, uh, country that is leading, that is pushing everybody towards a successful outcome. 
Uh, ASEAN countries move by consensus and they don't uh, uh, pursue uh, in general uh, hardcore binding obligations. India has played very defensive in terms of tariff elimination. And China, what I hear, has not been fully committed to RCEP, has been pursuing other initiatives that are more readily identified with Chinese leadership, the Belt Road Initiative, for example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and so forth. But now that TPP is in question, whether it can succeed or not, I think that there has been a decision by other countries that were in TPP and also in RCEP to try to reinvest into RCEP. If that's going to become the default trade grouping for the region, then the stakes have increased. And you see countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Japan trying to uh, um, have a larger role in RCEP. But the differences are very large in terms of, you know, it's a very heterogeneous group. And what each country wants to see as the final outcome is different. So it's not clear to me uh, what the end result will be and the timing of that uh, conclusion uh, of that negotiation. Yes, um, over there, the woman in the back, and, and then we'll come down here. Thanks very much, uh, Amanda Rishbeth. I'm uh, one of the Harvard Advanced Leadership Fellows this year. I'm from Australia, and I also come in peace. Um, so my question really is around sort of human capital and resource. So. As I understand it, um, there's some challenges in the vacancies in Washington, shall we say. So across portfolios, so many positions not yet uh, fulfilled, whether they will be fulfilled, I guess that's that is yet to be determined. Uh, and how do you see, notwithstanding the strategy unfolding around trade, uh, how that might, how do you think that's going to play out in, in these portfolios in terms of whether those vacancies might not get filled because of the drain, the swamp, potential commentary uh, and the risk that that might have to implementing whatever the strategy is going forward. Um, I'll comment a little bit on the trade team perspective. So I think there are a couple of gaps uh, right now, uh, particularly in the U.S. Trade Representative's office because there's a waiver that's required for the current nominee uh, to proceed with the nomination. Uh, so it's understandable that until the top person gets confirmed, you wouldn't confirm or even nominate the deputies. But I do think the folks that President Trump has selected um, do have a strong understanding of the legal rules. Um, they've, uh, they're former officials uh, involved in the Reagan administration. They've litigated a whole series of different domestic trade remedies cases. Uh, so I don't think there's a human capital deficit per se when it comes to, and when you have someone like Gary Cohn at the NEC, right, I don't think there's a human capital gap per se inside the White House. But I go back to the earlier comment, I do think the worldview, right, is different. Uh, when you've spent your career basically defending American companies against dumping from foreign competitors, and you've seen these companies lose share in the American market with the global repercussions, it can't help but to reshape your worldview. And similarly, when you were involved in these discussions during the Reagan administration and you saw it deliver the results against Japan, right? that can't help but to reshape your worldview as well. So I, I do think um, it's a different worldview, but I think it's a little bit unfair to say right, that there's a human capital deficiency, at least with respect to the trade team, because I do think it is a, a pretty sophisticated team that has been put into place there as far as the um, legal negotiating skills are concerned. 
I think where there's um, you know lack of people sitting at the desk most clearly is in the diplomatic area at the State Department, and you know you have all these organizational charts that show you exactly how many positions remain uh, vacant. And this is important because these are the people that understand the region very well, that process the everyday flow of communications, and it has been uh, slow moving. And also, you know, of course, many countries are still waiting for their new ambassador, uh, and that also impacts uh, Asia policy. Uh, gentleman here in the middle. Um, hi, Yuan Wang from Harvard Business School, Research Associate. Um, I want to ask a question more around business and market access. So recently, we've seen a lot of U.S. companies complain about the business environment um, in Asia. And over this weekend, at the Harvard China Forum, a senior executive from China Telecom said that it's now more and more for him and other executives see it's harder and harder for um, companies in certain sectors to be successful in China, either foreign, like telecom, banking. Um, the questions around, you know, at the time where more and more Chinese companies are trying to gain access to the U.S., um, you've, the Chinese side do not open certain sec market sectors in China. What would, how would that impact the business relationships between the two countries? Um, and with the Trump administration kind of seen as closer to the business community, how would, you know, a Trump administration impact um, relationship in this area? Well, I'm happy to we'll turn to you, take, a, take a crack at it, but, but uh, Yuan is my research associate, so we can have this conversation anytime. Uh, <laughs> the, um, um, uh, you know, uh, the mood, uh, you know, as expressed by the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing and Shanghai and so on, is uh, one that very much wants to support a positive business relationship between the United States and China. Uh, but more than 80% of those surveyed uh, expect uh, these, uh, that the relationship will deteriorate. Uh, the, 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 the business relationship, bilateral relations uh, in, in economic terms to deteriorate. And they also feel, and not wrongly in my view, uh, that uh, the Chinese government kind of de facto industrial policy of favoring local firms over international ones is accelerating, not uh, decreasing the utter failure of any state-owned enterprise perform of any note in China uh, is bad news for American and other international companies in China. Uh, ditto, however, much more so for private Chinese companies who are in spaces in many areas that in, other, in most other countries would be open to uh, only to private enterprise. Uh, and so, so that, I mean, that's nothing that uh, I don't think would surprise uh, any any of you, uh, but it is uh, uh, most most feel that they have very little confidence. More than sixty percent of the American companies doing business in China say they have little confidence that it is a, that the Chinese government uh, will open or will want to open more opportunities for investment for foreign firms in China than before than than in the past. And last, uh, even though this doesn't affect for-profit companies, the crackdown on NGOs and other forms of organizations are affecting a whole range of uh, uh, projects of uh, intellectual and cultural exchange, uh, at least pro prospectively, even though nothing in particular has happened as a result of that law. It's had a somewhat chilling effect on other forms of American, what you might say, cultural investment in China.
I just make one quick comment here. I think U.S. business is in a very tricky situation, right? Because on the one hand, if you have a president that is going to more aggressively push to deliver on results and actually be able to get those results, you actually want to be supportive of that agenda. However, if you push too hard and it causes the whole thing to break down, you'd rather they not push to begin with. And I think just as everyone else is in a wait-and-see period, in some ways the business community is in a wait-and-see as well to see what gets delivered. If they can actually deliver something more than what has been obtained previously, right, then this type of strategy is to be supported. But if it causes everyone to march to the brink and actually jump, right, then all of a sudden you're going to see uh, people throwing life rafts to say, no, 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 please, right, let's take it easy here. Uh, right, let's not break uh, something that we have positive going here. Right, so. Yes, I saw a hand there in the middle of it. Hi there, uh, I'm Matt. I'm a Fulbright Visiting Scholar from Eastern Europe. Uh, so, Professor Kirby, in particular, you emphasize the strategic patience of Beijing towards Washington. So my question is, to what extent is this strategic patience business as usual versus uh, weakness of the Chinese regime? We've seen President Xi in Davos trying to reach the low-hanging fruit and sort of advocating his global leader. So. Uh, how will this dynamic play out? You know, um, so to what extent will uh, will Beijing continuously be strategically patient towards Washington, and to what extent might it go more for the low-hanging fruit that the Trump administration is offering continuously? So, what would be example? I mean, the low-hanging fruit you mentioned that they, they chose in Davos was to take on the mantle of Mr. International. Yeah, to uh, become like the, the global spokesperson, maybe the Paris right. Agreement, you know, China right. really trying to push this global global environmental issues. These are the kind of questions I have in mind. Yeah. Um, I think they, I, I think it, it's, it's, in the, it's in China's, and uh, actually it's in the United States' interest as well, to have uh, normal, uh, relations, particularly on the on the business front, uh, there will always be political ideological tensions between these two political uh, systems. Uh, but I uh, I think the Chinese government does not want to get into a struggle with the United States uh, on any matter if it can avoid it. Korea first and foremost, but uh, on trade and other things, the, the the United States is critically important to the future of the Chinese economy. And the reverse is actually also true, but it's more true for the Chinese uh, uh, investment, uh, trade and investment uh, within in the United States. Uh, so I think that this, this patience can ha have a long way to go because there's very little to gain by tweaking Trump's nose or by, um, you know, in some sense setting up a major confrontation unless it deals with the two or three things that could threaten either the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party or some sense of uh, endangerment for Chinese sovereignty. Uh, but I don't, uh, I, I, I think, you know, I'm reminded, you know, again, when George W. Bush had just become president, you remember this American spy plane that somehow found its way to, was it Hainan? Mm -hmm. Hainan is just doing a little tourism, uh, spy tourism uh, there, and it was forced down by a Chinese. And the Americans demanded the plane back, demanded the pilot back. And the Chinese said nothing. Didn't say they had it, didn't say they didn't have it. Just radio silence. And eventually the uh, Bush administration woke up to the fact that 
They had the plane. They had the pilot. They had all the cards. So we end up apologizing, and we get the pilot back and the plane probably in pieces um, uh, back. It's, you know, uh, they'll do their best not to embarrass the United States, I think, because the long-term relationship is so uh, important to China. Let, let me jump in with a couple of uh, questions that came up uh, in your presentations that weren't entirely clear to me that you didn't have enough time to ask, one for Maria and one for Mark Wu. But also, I just want to come back to the question about North Korea. I mean, if we had had clairvoyance in setting up panels, we would have given what's been going on in the last couple of weeks. Today's panel would have been a bunch of experts on uh, security in East and Northeast Asia. Um, and so I suppose you can say, well, it's a different panel, so we're not going to respond to that. But it's, it's still an important issue. But the question in my mind, and I don't, I'm not, know if any of you want to comment on it, it has, it is that this is a crisis that's been brewing for a long time. And uh, Graham Allison at the Harvard Kennedy School calls it the Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. And I think that's apt because the fundamental core issue is, as in Cuba, the United States saying we will not tolerate nuclear weapons in this place. Yes. And so if it's Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion, that actually sl slow motion goes back a, well over a decade. And I'm not particularly here to defend Donald Trump, but I do think it's a, a legitimate question to ask, how different would this be had Hillary, were Hillary Clinton now the president? I, the North Koreans were already developing the missiles. They were already developing the warheads. They would have continued to be developing. They may, may well have continued to test them. It's not crystal clear to me I mean, I, I find it a terrifying situation, but it's not entirely c clear to me how less terrifying it would have been. Uh, Bill? You know, I think if you look at it from both a historical and contemporary policy, but if you, I think it'd be almost exactly the same. Um, and uh, without a clear sense, I think the biggest impediment right now to it, a, a clear American response is uh, the lack of personnel, uh, both in China policy, uh, at state and, and other places, uh, and the disruption of uh, government in South Korea. Mm -hmm. But if you were to look ahead, what are the, here's one area where I think one, I, w I would agree, although Obama said the same thing, uh, George W. Bush said somewhat the same thing, you know, the, the fundamental, who, who, who conceivably can do the most to reign in North Korea. And you know this is more than anyone else's a, a Chinese responsibility. They're the big brother in the neighborhood. North Korea historically, Koreans don't like to hear this, but from a Chinese point of view, uh, is a, you know, there's a clientelist point of view, that is to say patron and client. Um, you know, it was a Chinese governor until 1875, Yuan Shikai, uh, until the Japanese takeover of Korea. Uh, there's a sense of both uh, the appropriateness of Chinese influence there and a fear of other foreign influence there. China has a heavy historical responsibility for having presided over, as it were, the endurance of this regime during the famine of the 1990s, two or more million Koreans dying on China's doorstep, uh, returning refugees back to that state, uh, and blinking and still 
con continuing to support Korea during North Korea during its uh, nuclear armament. What I would, you know, what what can solve this? <laughs> Nothing can solve it in the absence of extraordinary statesmanship on the Chinese side and on the American side, with assistance from South Korea, uh, some broad strategic agreement that will lead in time to the unification of the peninsula and the Americans going home. Uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but what could the Chinese do to defuse this sooner rather than later? And I think of the historical example of 1989 in Eastern Europe, open the border. That is to say, stop sending people back. Those people who get to China, even if 20 million go to China, you could assist those in getting to the South. 20 million are not going to go to China. Uh, and you could begin to take an air out of the bubble of this regime without, ideally, without military conflict. Uh, it was that that delegitimized uh, the GDR regime in a matter of months uh, in 1989, and the capacity of people to leave, uh, and the sense that the game was up, uh, and, a, and a fracturing of the ruling uh, uh, Politburo in the GDR. Who knows what will happen, but it's the least dangerous step forward that would also be a very strong humanitarian step on China's part. I don't think she has, Xi Jinping has the courage uh, to take that step, but it would be a, if he did, it would be a great and statesmanlike step. But the other China thing. I mean, the comment that I was going to make about that is, right, um, she could evaluate whether or not to take that step were he to know what he would receive in return Absolutely. for that. Absolutely. Right? And that part has not been spelled out. And until that gets spelled out, she has no reason to think all that trade is but one dimension on that piece, right? But certainly North Korea and a number of these other issues are holding together as a means for some right. cooperation uh, on the business front, so. The United States and China have had uh, conversations over a long period of time of what might happen in the long distance future, uh, which include where the Americans will go uh, after unification. But that's, uh, you know, presumably someone in the White House will find those archives and uh, dust them off. Let me ask Mark the question I have for you. I was a little confused when you're talking about defection in, in your follow-up comments and the idea that one issue in this shift to a kind of bilateralism is that um, if there are two parties in the game theory situation, one's always defecting, then the other one is eventually going to realize they're being played for soccer. But it seemed to me that you were saying that the Americans are the defectors in that scenario. Did mm -hmm. I misunderstand? I, I think from the White House's perspective, mm -hmm. right, the okay. Chinese are the defectors in that scenario. And I'll use an example, for example, on subsidies, right? Mm -hmm. Under WTO rules, you're supposed to report all of your subsidies so that your trading partners can evaluate whether or not those are legal or not, right? Um, those have never been regularly reported, either by Beijing or by Delhi, eventually under some pressure, right? Beijing finally gave some submission on those, right? But in the meantime, we all know under WTO rules, right, that it requires a lot of American resources to investigate those. Um, and even when those subsidies are found to be illegal, um, you don't have to repay the harm that comes as a result of all of that, right? So I think from I the see. current administration standpoint, right, um, 
even though there's no hard and fast rule on that, right? That violates the spirit of cooperation um, that everyone signed on to. So this is a cooperate defect, cooperate defect, cooperate defect, where in the game theoretical payoff, right? There's a higher payoff to the defector and nobody else is calling out or at least has always turned to the United States for leadership to call out the defectors on this. And the United States is throwing up its arms to say, well, what if we don't? What if we happen to defect too? Uh, um, asking the rest of the world to ponder that type of scenario. I think that's different than saying the United States is not committed to multilateralism, right? Um, and that's the only point that I wanted to make, right? Is that the United States, uh, at least the way this administration's worldview is, is that in a world where not everyone is as cooperative on multilateralism, why should the United States be? Right, and then thinking back to the 1980s when the, you could say that there was a similar kind of frustration with Japan, the thing that kept the United States from allowing itself to be, from in, in this scenario, manipulated or cheated on was there was this other issue of the Cold War and then one, it was more important to have Japan as an ally there even at the expense of always cooperating and always seeing defection. And in some measure, it seems that's a little bit happening now with China in relation to North Korea potentially, where there's tolerance on the economic issues to the extent that it's seen as necessary to have China's cooperation. Yes, although I think right the way there has to be results. And the current status quo and strategic patience on the part of Pyongyang is, right, this is eventually the status quo is leading us down a path to a nuclear-armed ICBM with the capabilities of reaching American shores. And so I think there's a real debate to be had, are we willing to live with that or not? And if we're not willing to live with that, what are the results that we're gonna ask of the Chinese to prevent that from occurring? And what happens if the Chinese don't deliver upon that? So I think those are some really big existential questions that need to be asked, tying the security issue to the trade issue here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, y yes, in what? Uh, can you s tell us who, who you are, by the way? What's my affiliation? Who knows? But <laughs> uh, that's entirely unclear that they have an ICBM. But what we have now in Busan is a Ohio-class nuclear submarine, which is uh, capable of carrying 24 nuclear missiles plus 12 other 100 kiloton missiles uh, for a <coughs> hull check. Then it's going to go off and join the Carl Vincent carrier group that as of yet has not arrived in Korean waters, but I imagine it's not so far away. And uh, Pence was in Japan, and there's already a carrier group in, in southern Japan, so it's not like there isn't enough nuclear weapons there to totally wipe out any potential for that problem of the ICBM ever being developed in the first place. So the question, <coughs> could arise that strategic blah blah on the part of Xi may not even come about. This, you know, and tomorrow he's gonna meet, Trump is gonna meet all the senators. He's gonna have a, a secret uh, meeting with them. 
as far as what his intentions could become. At least he's informing Congress of what could happen. But what's interesting about that is that if you eliminate the problem, and by the way, uh, Kennedy did a deal with Khrushchev to take away the missiles from Turkey as an exchange for getting rid of the nuclear weapons in Cuba. And that was the secret deal that he made. So it wa he wasn't entirely clean on that deal. But the question, the question would be, well, what happens if you just take out Pyongyang? Yeah, get rid of that little creepy guy. I mean, he murders a brother that was being groomed to take over. You know, he was pro-Western, had the potential for becoming, you know, a reasonable character, integrate North Korea with South Korea, tell the Chinese, take it or leave it. You know, we don't really care what you say about this right now because at this point, this is just a major problem and we gotta get rid of it. What happens if Trump says, okay? Does anybody want to answer that question? This doesn't sound like, it's not a very pleasant scenario. Um, yes, here. Uh, my name is Feng Daimei. I'm affiliated with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So I have a question about the One Belt, One Road. So apparently this is a very important ini initiative by uh, uh, Xi Jinping administration. So, and also, in, uh, actually in May, in Beijing, uh, they will have a big conference on uh, One Belt, One Road. So my question is, do you think that uh, American companies uh, will be interested in involving this initiative? Thank you. Sure, if they, I mean, you know, uh, I've discovered over the last few years that if you ever want to raise money with incredible ease for any academic conference, just put one belt, one road in the, in the title and money will flow from some official source. Um, the, um, you know, it is, it's interesting about the one belt, one road, you know, if one is a skeptic about it, uh, which I'm not uh, entirely, you know, it's a way of exporting excess uh, capacity in many industries, particularly infrastructure ones, uh, so not a bad idea uh, for China. It's a means of kind of regularizing or at least uh, seeming to organize what is in any event uh, uh, a significant uh, overseas investment by both private and, and state-owned Chinese enterprises, sometimes linked, sometimes not linked with uh, foreign uh, goals, uh, foreign policy goals. It's still an incredibly messy concept. Um, 65 countries are part of this uh, new Silk Road. Uh, so it's kind of an insult not to be uh, um, a part of it. It doesn't include the United States yet. Um, and I'm, I'm really kind of upset about that. But, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a means, and one has to give President Xi credit, it's a means of organizing uh, and giving uh, co seeming coherence to foreign trade policy uh, that is deemed to benefit uh, the partners in trade. And it's uh, that, and so in that sense, it's a, it, it, 
in terms of foreign policy, in terms of soft power, it's actually a rather positive thing uh, for China to do. In economic policy, we shall see. I don't personally think that the future of the Chinese economy is going to be found in Pakistan, uh, but I could be wrong. Um, just just a, a comment on the Belt Road. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot in this panel about trade rules, and I think the, the benefit of bringing, like you did, the Belt Road Initiative is that it brings a related but also very important separate agenda, and that is connectivity, uh, infrastructure, uh, lending, financing for those projects. And I think that, uh, you know, China has been very adept in, um, you know, has a, a great marketing uh, strategy here, and then we'll see what actually comes of it. But in terms of generating soft power, in terms of identifying a real problem, a real funding gap in the region, I think that China has done very well. I think that Japan has responded uh, nimbly to this uh, um, you know, Chinese initiative, uh, but I don't see a, a, a similar American response. So I, I frequently ask myself, how is the United States positioning itself on trade, on connectivity, on infrastructure development in the region? And I don't see it keeping up, if I may say so, vis-a-vis uh, -vis other countries. What has Japan done? Well, it launched a very large uh, quality infrastructure fund, but it also went back and revisited how the Japan Bank for International Cooperation can fund projects, and it has actually enabled the bank to take greater risk. The idea is that the bank was so cautious that it could really participate in many of these projects. And therefore, we do see uh, a competitive drive in the region for many countries to try to supply that uh, finance. And I think that the connectivity agenda is going to grow in importance. Yes, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, I'm now a prospective student uh, to the Johnny School, and I'm now a paralegal from China, and uh, one of my clients is now doing the business way uh, between the uh, Ch Chinese and the US and about uh, one billion. So it's very small, but my, my point first is that business is business, it will go, no matter what's the policy that <laughs> the Trump will make. But uh, we all know that uh, the policy uh, will influence the business in maybe one or two years later. So I hope that in that time, Trump is still on the presidency. So my question is that uh, uh, just now, the, the lady mentioned about uh, one belt and one road, and I appreciate that uh, 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 Professor William that today, that uh, because maybe because that he know more about Chinese uh, more about China, so they try to focus on the topic and uh, in the China center and try to understand chi China government policy first and then we come back to today's topic. So my question is, uh, what do uh, any of the professor appreciate to answer it? What do you evaluate for Trump that to consider the one, one built, one road policy when President Trump make the policy with the Asia, because they want, in my understanding, today I, I just uh, narrow the topic with maybe, uh, I don't think that China is behalf of the Asia, but uh, maybe for the China and the US, how do you think that President Trump should evaluate one bill, one, one seat, when they do the policy with the, like the uh, US with Asia or US with China, uh, by the way, there is another uh, rumor, maybe news, I don't know, and uh, say that uh, President Trump uh, now is trying to talk with uh, Germany 
try to make the trade, new trade policy, but the uh, primary minister of German now is said that respect European Union first, and then we talk. We do not want to talk with you uh, in US and uh, German, but we want to talk with you in US with the European Union. So uh, my point, so last sentence that, uh, in my understanding that President Trump now is trying to set up a new game and find a new player in it, but uh, seems that other, you know, the group trying to follow their own games, like China now is take the uh, national policy about one build, one road, and they want to do their own things. So, thank you. Well. Um, Yes. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, it's, 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 it's an impossible question to answer because, uh, you know, uh, again, without knowing what Mr. Trump actually thinks, but let's, let's assume that he means what he says then, that he wants to invest a lot in American infrastructure. What's the best way to do that? Who's the best country, what's the best country in the world of building infrastructure today? Where is there one area where China is clearly number one? It's in that. And so if you wanted, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. If you wanted to build high-speed rail in this country, uh, you almost surely would not have an American company providing the, the, you'd have American companies involved in it, left, right, and center, but would they be the ones giving the overall design and the, and the rail stock? Might be Japan, might be China, might be the Germans or the French. That's about it. Uh, uh, maybe the Canadians, but... Uh, uh, they do the they they did the uh, Acela trains and mm. they're not so good. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so I think you know if I were to advise Mr. Trump, it would be to embrace Mr. Xi's one belt one road to insist that the United States be part of the you can choose maritime or land based Silk Road, and have the Chinese build the new railway system in this country. You know they built the first railway system in in the United States. Chinese did. Uh, this time they can build a second, and this time we can actually pay them for it. Um, if I think if I had a minute with the president to talk about One Belt, One Road, I counsel don't overreact, right? Um, stay engaged in Asia, right? I make sure he understands that this is China's plan for being engaged in the near periphery, but you don't need to see this as zero sum, right? Building out infrastructure, um, will certainly help China's own soft power, but there are real limits to that strategy without the other elements of soft power. And you can look at how much Japan spent in the near periphery in the 1980s and 1990s and what the soft power benefits are. And I think when you look at the near periphery in Asia, um, almost all of those allies see the US as indispensable to the Western Pacific today. Don't do anything to mess up that view. Are there any other questions? We've been at it a while. Um, okay, one, one, one last question from, from over here. Uh, so President Trump um, uh, promised uh, that uh, he, he will take the jobs back to, uh, to, to the U.S. So my question is, uh, do you think so made in China will be uh, replaced by made in the USA one day? I'll, I'll, I'll take a step. I mean, um, correct policy solutions 
require correct diagnosis. And when you look at the situation of manufacturing job loss in the 2000s, I think it's very important to confirm what produced those losses. And most research shows that the vast, uh, by far the largest force has been automation. Certainly competition with China imposed a heavy toll on some uh, sectors in the United States. Furniture and apparel took a big hit. But overall, something like in the neighborhood of 80 to 85 percent of manufacturing job losses can be attributed to technological change. So it's very hard to make the case that you can fight against technology. And I think it would be better to also find out, for example, five million jobs were lost in the 2000s. Today, there are five million jobs, that job openings that go unfilled because we have major rigidities in the labor market or because we don't provide uh, people in the workforce with the necessary skills to apply for those jobs. So I think that there has to be a much better safety net. There has to be investments in human capital. Uh, we should try to navigate this major technological change. And uh, that requires, therefore, a set of policy measures that are not about erecting uh, walls or tariff barriers. Yes, th thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you all for coming today and thank the panelists for uh, your uh, comments and remarks. Thank the, the various Asia-related center staffs who've been carrying around mics today and helped organize this event. And we'll reconvene on other occasions. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.